it's interesting, in Israel, a country that's primarily a whole lot of desert and hills and mountains and scrubby growth of plants, there's a body of water that covers almost 500 square miles. It's 10 miles by 50 miles. And 10 miles wide, 50 miles long. A large, large body of water. And if you're familiar with Israel, you know what it's called. It's called the Dead Sea. Guess why they call it the Dead Sea? It's dead. Brilliant, huh? It's dead. And the reason that it's dead is the mineral content, the salt content of that water is almost nine times that of the oceans. Life can't live in it. If you look at pictures, go online and Google the Dead Sea, and you'll see these amazing crystal structures along the shoreline from when the water's higher or lower. And you see these things, and there's even one that, that they think is uh, a, a, a statue of someone from the Bible. Anybody know who that is? Lot's wife. She made the mistake of looking back. Don't look back. Go where God's going in the future. But it's all crystal salt. The only thing that lake is good for, that sea is good for, is bobbing in it like a cork. And one guy said, a lot of tourists love the, the bus to stop there and everybody gets in their bathing suits and they go about and bob in the water for a while. And they only do it once because you can't get all the mineral off your body and every crevice and ear and opening that there is. And it's that thick that you cannot sink in that lake. And the interesting thing about the Dead Sea is this. It is continually continually being filled with fresh water. The Jordan River coming from the north, a rather large river, especially at certain times of the year, it floods. There's so much fresh water coming into the Dead Sea. And besides the large Jordan River, there's many, many other streams and rivers that are coming in to the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is over 400 meters below sea level. It's the lowest point on land on the earth. So all of this fresh water is running into it continually, and yet it's the Dead Sea. And the reason it's the Dead Sea is with all of this fresh water coming in, there is no outlet. So all the fresh water that comes in eventually sits there and evaporates, and the mineral content is deposited. All these fresh resources of water coming in and nothing going out. Hopefully, it's not us or you, but many people are like the Dead Sea. The title of my message, in fact, was Don't Be Dead Sea People. Don't be Dead Sea People. What do I mean by that? What would a Dead Sea person look like, be like? I believe it's one who receives fresh blessings from the Lord, one who receives fresh resources from the Lord, one who receives fresh provisions from the Lord and nothing goes out. Or the outlet is so small that barely anything goes out. Dead Sea people do not channel their resources that God has given them for other people's benefit to use. Most of us at least know the Bible tells us that everything belongs to him. We're just caretakers. Everything that allows you to to collect or earn those material things are because of gifts that God has put in you. Everything is coming from him, and that's a reality. Every good thing, the Bible says, every good thing comes from God. They are blessings from God. 
But Dead Sea people don't channel those resources. They come from him to other people in their lives and other people maybe sometimes on the other side of the globe. My challenge today and hopefully for 2018 and really beyond is that we become a generous people. A number of us in here, a number of you in here are generous. So my prayer is that you become even more generous people to advance the kingdom through this church and other places. We're going to look at a text in 2 Corinthians. It's just going to be three verses. We're going to look at what I believe a scripture that shows us what the role model is for us to be generous people, what the motivation has to be, really, for us to be generous people, and what the ultimate goal is in the area of generosity. We're going to read these three verses, and then we're actually going to go through them, and we're going to start at the last one and work our way backwards. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7, it says this, But just as you excel in everything, this is the Apostle Paul writing to a church in Corinth. And the church in Corinth is a pretty prosperous church, a pretty, probably a pretty well-to-do church. The people of Corinth were pretty well-educated, especially those that would have been Jewish people. They were pretty well-educated. So he's writing this to a pretty, pretty prosperous church one who's excelling spiritually as well. And he says, just as you excel in everything, in your faith, in speech, in knowledge, in a complete earnestness, and in your love for us. He said, even in your love for us, the way you love us, those of us who have, have shared the good news of the gospel with you, who have been spiritual fathers, so to speak. You, you, you excel in all these things. Then he says, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. That's a little different. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you might through his poverty become rich. So we're going to look at this and see if we can see the role model, the motivation, and the goal. Well, the role model is easy, as it is oftentimes in Christianity. Who's our role model in just about everything? Christ. Jesus is our role model. When we look at verse 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The grace. The unmerited favor. Giving us what we didn't deserve. The grace, he says, of Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes, our sakes, he became poor, so that you can, through his poverty, might become rich. For your sakes, he became poor. When we look at Jesus as our role model, I want you to try to think of it this way. He is the source of that river. We would like our lives to be a river of grace, a river of generosity, not a dead sea. And he is the role model for us to look at. It says he became poor for our sakes. You know, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, kind of gives us a great picture what that means, that he became poor. It says this, 
Our attitude, yours and mine, should be the same one as Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to cling to, something to hold on to. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in the human likeness. It's a little discouraging, isn't it? He became nothing. What's nothing? Being made in the human likeness. Gives you an idea of who we are without Christ, doesn't it? He became nothing, human likeness. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. He made himself nothing. It's almost like he he goes progressively into greater and greater levels of nothingness or humility. He made himself nothing. He left heaven. Just think of this, and I, I know it's hard for us because we can't hardly imagine what heaven looked like in general, but can you imagine the throne of God sitting at the right hand of the Father in the fullness of his glory, the fullness of your own glory? There you are. You've been spending eternity with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, and you've been loving every minute of it. You need absolutely nothing. And yet, you leave heaven. You lower yourself. You humble yourself. You become poor in the sense that you leave heaven and you come to earth. Live on this planet which is nothing more than his creation. He humbled himself. And if that's not enough, he comes in time the form of a child, a man, a baby. He's born in Bethlehem of all places. You know, it would be one thing if you're, you know, the king sitting at the right hand of God the Father and you get to come to earth and you're the king of the planet and everybody worships you and, and glorifies you and you, you have anything and everything you want. But no, that's not how he comes. He comes as a child born in Bethlehem to, to this young couple. Who's, he's a carpenter, and they live in the middle of nowhere, Nazareth. They live in the middle of nowhere, and that's where you're born. And then you grow and you, you learn the skills of your father like every Jewish boy would, and you become a carpenter for a number of years. And then you become an itinerant rabbi walking on the dirty, dusty roads of Galilee, Judea, Israel. And you're teaching, and you're healing, and you're even doing miracles. That's all pretty cool, and you're doing it in an environment under the rule of Rome, an oppressive place. He humbled himself. He came to earth. He left heaven. He left the richness of all of that. And God says he became poor on our behalf. In Matthew 8, 20, when there's a group of people saying, hey, we want to be your followers. I want to follow you. What did Jesus say? Hey, think about it. I don't even have a place to put my head to sleep at night. That's how he was. He became poor. He made himself nothing. He gave up, divested himself of what the Lord appeared to call wealth, laying down his wealth for us. Why did he do this? Why would he do all of that? Well, it tells us, we know he loves us and all that, but it tells us the reason he did that, he became poor, why? That we may become rich. Now, before you get greedy and you start counting dollars, doesn't necessarily mean that. Spiritually rich, for sure. I guarantee you, I promise you, that he became poor, that we might become spiritually rich. What is spiritually rich? You can't spend it and you can't buy much with it, can you? It's better than anything we can buy. It's better than anything you spend your money on. He became, we became spiritually rich. We are able to have a relationship with God. 
we are able to have all the guilt and shame and condemnation removed because of forgiveness. We become rich, spiritually rich. We are called children of God, the creator of the universe. He sees you and me, and he says, you're my sons and you're my daughters, spiritually rich. He even takes it further and says, you're my sons and your daughters, and you are joint heirs with Jesus Christ, God the Son. Joint heirs, spiritually rich. He goes on, and we could go on and on and on looking at those things. The Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, lives in us, for goodness sakes. Spiritually rich. We're alive again. We have been promised an eternal home in heaven that Jesus left earth almost 2,000 years ago to prepare a place for us. Spiritually rich. Boy, oh boy, a few thousand dollars in the bank doesn't amount to much, does it, in terms of being spiritually rich? Because not one thing I mentioned so far can you purchase. I don't care how rich you are in the natural. He became poor that we might become rich. He became poor that we could experience and have the fruit of the Holy Spirit in us, the love, the joy, peace, goodness, kindness, patience, self-control, all of them spiritually rich. He gave it all up that we might have all of those things. But does it go beyond spiritual richness? I believe yes. I can't tell you for sure what that means. I want to share a scripture in Romans that helps me a little bit in that area. It says this in 832. He who did not spare his own son, God the Father, gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him, give us, graciously give us all things. I don't know what the all things are. But I knew, no, he promises to meet every need. Every need. Spiritual or material, he promises he'll meet our needs. He promises, he promises to bless us in our obedience abundantly, beyond what we can imagine. I believe there's a spiritual aspect, obviously, but I also believe there's a natural aspect. He knows what we need on this earth. One of the spiritual gifts that he gives to his people is the gift of giving. In the area of finances, if you've got that gift, guess guess what? You've also got the gift of getting. He will bless us. So I believe there is a spiritual blessing, but I also believe there is blessings in the natural because of what Christ did. We just need to make sure we don't focus and create idols on the blessings that come in the natural. All things. How do we respond to that kind of generosity from God? How do we respond to that kind of generosity from Christ? Are you and I living a life with an overwhelming sense of gratitude? If I would meditate, and I hope if any of us would meditate on what I just rattled off as a few of the spiritual blessings, we couldn't help but feel a sense of thanksgiving and gratitude rising up in us. There is nothing in there that we could get anywhere else but to be freely given to us by God himself because of what Christ did. Are we living our life 
representing, demonstrating that kind of overwhelming gratitude? Is our gratitude truly demonstrated by Christ-like generosity? Christ-like giving? There's a difference. As I go through this, make sure you have this difference in mind. Giving out of generosity is different than giving by force or command or obligation. God is not interested in that kind of giving. He's not interested in making you give of your time, your talents, or your treasure. It's no longer law. Actually, it goes beyond law because before before Christ, the law was rigid, structured. But after Christ, grace, he came to fulfill the law. Many of the principles still apply. But it's not by command. And Paul made that clear. So Jesus is our model. What must the motivation be? I think it's clear to us in verse 8. Love. Verse 8 says, I am not commanding you. So Paul is telling to the Corinthian church that he needs an offering. He's told them way in advance that he needs an offering, but he's heard that it's not coming together the way he wants it to or he thought it should. And it's an offering to be taken to a needy group of people. It really doesn't matter where that needy group of people is or from or who they are, but it happens to be the church in Jerusalem. They're starving. They're in great, great need. And he's coming to them and he says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. What's the generosity about? What should the motivation for your generosity and my generosity be? Love. Love. Do we love others enough to be generous with whatever we have? Do we love others enough to give of our time when we could spend our time doing something else? Do we love others enough to use those gifts that God put in us to just serve people when some of those very same gifts can help us accumulate more stuff? How does the Lord look at our giving? Is it coming from love? Out of a generous heart? And are we giving joyfully? It's interesting to me that Paul is challenging them. You know, in the church, we have gotten some so gun-shy about talking about money. You know, I was reading this week, one guy said, hey, you know, if your church doesn't want to hear about money, don't preach like Jesus preached. Because if you preached in the same proportion of his teaching, we would be having sermons on giving and money and material goods 19 weeks out of every year. Think about that. That's not my goal, by the way. You can't force people to give. You can force people to give, but not out of generosity. You can manipulate people to give, but that's not generosity. We need to be generous givers out of a love that we have in our hearts for others, both physical needs and spiritual needs. Generosity comes from within. It has to come from within. You know, we could hold a gun to your head and somebody could hold a gun to your head and give me your money. That's called robbery, right? 
God's not a robber. God wants you to pour out from what he's given you. It really is one of the greatest deals ever made. I've got nothing. He gives me everything. He'd like me to give, oh, 10 back, 10% back, maybe a little more, something like that. Wait a minute. I had nothing. You give me everything. You only want 10% back? It's a great deal. It's a great deal. Matter of fact, if all of you happen to have a $100 bill in your pocket, I'd be glad to take it and give you $10 back and say, blessed. We know that's not, it's just not natural. But this is God's economy. And out of a generous heart, generosity. Paul says, I'm going to test the sincerity of your love. Love is the motivation. Love for whom? Who's he talking about here? Is he talking about love for Christ? That makes sense. Is he talking about love for me, meaning Paul? I am your spiritual father. You do love me. You do care about me. You do pray for me. Is he talking about that love? That work. But I don't think that's the clear meaning. He's talking about the sincerity of your love for others. In this case, specifically, the church in Jerusalem that's going through a horrible, horrible time. Do you love them? Do you care? Do you have the love of Christ in you for those people, in this case, your brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering? There's no food. They're starving. Will you, out of the generosity of your heart, out of the love that you have for them, will that love motivate you to give generously? Now, in the natural, and don't pretend like you don't think like this, many of us would say, you know what, if I just had more money, I could give more money. As if the amount of money will motivate you to give more. I hate to tell you this, but it's not true. Money is not the motivator. Money won't motivate you to give more. You know, you don't need to, and let me just encourage you. Here's, I'm going to encourage you on how to pray for generosity to be a bigger deal in your life, okay? Here's how I'd like you to pray. Don't pray for God to give you a better job so you have more money that you can give more away. Don't pray for that. Don't pray for God to give you a desire to give more money away. Don't pray for that. Here's what I want you to pray. Pray that God <clears throat> pray that God would give you his heart so that you could love people more than we do now. And out of that love will become a generosity that'll shock you. And you know what else will happen? You will be so blessed by giving that you won't be able to stand it. You'll want to do more. And then the craziest thing in this whole thing in God's goofy economy is he will bless you with more as you're generous. You hear us throw around the phrase, you can't outgive God. Well, I got to tell you, if it's not coming out of a generous heart, you can outgive God. If you are giving to get, you can outgive God. He will not bless that. But if you give out of a generous heart, you cannot outgive God. You can't do it. He tells us it's impossible. Try me. Try him. Try to outgive him out of a generosity that's based and motivated by love. Jesus is our role model. Motivation is love. And it's interesting to me, and you know, 
I hope you don't think I'm goading you here. But Paul sort of did that. He said, I'm testing the sincerity of your love to see if you really love by comparing them to another group of people. Now, we probably wouldn't like that in our culture much. You know, there's a church over there. I heard they give this much money every single Sunday. What's wrong with you guys? We'd never do that. We would remind you, however, to meet our budget for 2018. We have to receive tithes and offerings every single week of over 7,293. $7, I bookkeeper would know that. Every week. And we've never missed our budget. God is so faithful. But it could be so much better. And we could do so much more. And in 2018, if the Lord is leading us to minister to all these families and their children, we're going to have to do more. Do we love these people enough? You know, there's some people in this community, and you don't all know these people in this community, and they probably won't listen to the recording online, so I don't need to worry about it. But there's some of them I have a hard time wanting to help. I see what they're doing. I know how they're wasting all of their money. But that's not the love of Christ. And then I look at their kids, and it breaks your heart. And to think that we have an opportunity to bring life and speak life into children from the time they're born till they're ready to go to school. What a cool picture that is. But it's going to take love and loving people to do that. Paul's goading them. He says, who has the bigger love? What he's referring to, you need to read the first five verses. How am I doing for it? Let's read the first five verses of uh, chapter 8. He's comparing them to the Macedonian church. And the Macedonian church is about the polar opposite of the Corinthian church. Corinthians prospering, Macedonians not so much. He says this, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which was given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. What's he saying? The grace of God overflowed in them, and they don't have anything. They're struggling. They don't have much, and they gave beyond what you could have imagined. As a matter of fact, he says, they were begging us. They were begging us. Verse 2 says, or verse 3, For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much entreaty, much begging, for the favor of participating in the support of the saints. This wasn't as we expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. That's who he's comparing him to when he says, I want to test the sincerity of your love. Do you love as much as the Macedonian church loves? Don't pray for money, more money. Don't pray for a heart to give. Pray for love. That God would give you the ability to love people more. That's the motivation. Jesus is the role model. And the last thing I think is in verse 7. And it tells us what the goal for all of us should be. Verse 7 says, But just as you excel in everything, faith, speech, knowledge, and in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, he says, see that you excel in this grace 
of giving. We want to be a river of grace. We want to be a river of generosity. We do not want the blessings of God, the resources of God to be stopped in us. It will generally create a spirit of greed, a spirit of materialism. We become that person who $1 more won't quite be enough. Every day we need $1 more and $1 more. A bigger this or a bigger that, a newer this, a newer that, a shinier this, a shinier that. The goal is to excel. I want to paraphrase that verse, take the liberty. This is the Nelson paraphrase. You're good at a lot of things. Unfortunately, giving isn't one of them. I want to challenge you to put as much effort into giving as you put in excelling at all that other stuff. It's as if Paul was saying to them, and if he was speaking to us, he might say something like this. You're really good at your job. Not so good at giving. You're really good at golf, but you're not so good at giving. You're really good at basketball, you're not so good at giving. You're really good at cheering for those Vikings, but you're not so good at giving. You're really good at reading the scriptures, but you're not so good at giving. You're really, really good at sharing your spiritual gifts, but you're not good at giving. What do we have to do to excel in giving? If Jesus is our role model, love is our motivation, and we're to excel, how do we do it? I don't know exactly, but I'm going to share four things, and then I'm going to close. One, for you to excel in generosity. And remember, every time I say giving, I'm talking about giving out of generosity, not manipulation, not commanding. But the first step needs to be this. Give a first time. You're not going to excel at giving if you don't give a first time. I'd ask this question, but it would be almost worse than Paul teaching the Macedonians. If you didn't get a white envelope from Cindy Barnes last week and you don't get one in the mail this week, it's not because we don't love you. It's because there was no need for a receipt. You might find it hard to believe, but there's a number of those. In that envelope, it's going to share with you how much you gave to the church. See how close you are to tithing. But if you're not a first-time giver, you're never going to excel at giving. Never. Become a regular giver, number two. Become regular at it. Jesus told the people, he says, you know what, on the first day of the week, put aside something so that when we do come, we don't have to twist your arm. Well, he didn't say that, but that's kind of the illusion. Put some, become a habit. Form a habit. First time, need to give. Give regularly. Third one, become a tither. Now, I understand, just as Paul understood, he's not commanding him to give. The tithe was under the law. You had to give. If you added up all the tithes that they commanded, it actually came to about 23%, not just 10. But the word tithe means one-tenth. One-tenth. Do, some of us would say, do people really tithe a tenth? Do you really give that much money to the church? I want to tell you, yes. 
There are a number of people in here who tithe. When you look at your net income, when you do your taxes, or your gross income, I should say, when you do your taxes. Now, if you're a farmer, don't go there. But basically, take what you earned and compare it to what's in that little envelope. If you multiply what's in that little envelope times 10 and it doesn't come anywhere close to this, guess what? You didn't quite tithe. I'm going to read this in the Old Testament, but remember, this is not law, but it's Malachi 3. Will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how do you rob me? How do I rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. Test me in this. Test me in this. This is Old Testament, but that promise, that challenge from God, that's the only place you're going to see God say, test me in this. Test me in this and see if it won't still be in abundance in your life. Test me in this. Boy, and I know. I know if, if, if you're struggling financially, I get it. You know, we are called first and foremost to take care of our family, but you know what? Tithing is part of taking care of our family. It opens up the door to God's blessing. If you, if you can't tithe, I just want to start somewhere. I'd encourage you to test him in it, though. Maybe even something like this. Lord, you said test me. I'm going to test you. I will tithe for the next three months, and I'll see if I'm worse off or better off. Test me in this. This church, a quick story, this church, a number of years ago, many of you that are regulars, many are a long time, know this. When we were at a little church downtown, we didn't tithe as a church. We expected the body to tithe, but we as a church didn't tithe. You know, so that would be like a tenth of a tenth. Right now, every Sunday, when we receive an offering here, whatever that offering is, 10% of that is automatically designated to go out to missions somewhere else. That's the minimum amount we will give away in missions. We are going to tithe. We weren't tithing. At that time, Ken Lundin had the misfortune of being our pastor. Week after week, we could hardly pay him. Some couple weeks, if I remember right, Bob, we didn't pay him. He was so gracious, he didn't quit. Then one day, we had a meeting. And it was a board meeting, and we said, you know, wait a minute. We expect the people to tithe, but we're not tithing as a church. That just doesn't seem right. Well, we didn't have enough money each month to even pay our pastor. Now we're supposed to give away more? We'll lose him for sure. Well, that board meeting, we decided from that day forward, we were going to tithe out of the first fruits. In other words, we were going to tithe out of whatever came in, no matter what. And I got to tell you, we tested God, and not one time, not one time ever since that day, were we short of finances? And that's still true to this very day. We have never been short of finances. It gets close every once in a while, but we've never been short. We built this building. I forget what we borrowed, 300000 or something. Quite a, three what? $350,000. We had about 300000 250000 in, in our bank account. And in five years, it was paid off. Paid off. We believe it could have been paid off on day one because we believe the resources are here when God calls us to do something. We just have to loose those resources. Tithing, 10%.
It's not law. But I got to tell you, when Christ came, it's like in the, the, the Sermon on the Mount. It's like saying, under the law it was like this, but here it's like this. So really, in my mind, and I, I can't give you a scripture and verse, but in my mind, that's a good starting point. A good starting point. We're, we're in a new time, or new, new grace released. Become a first-time giver, become a regular giver, become a tither, and then I want to encourage you with the fourth one. And we've got some of these. Extravagant givers. Become an extravagant giver. Now, some of you can maybe relate to this. You're so madly in love with the girlfriend, fiance, wife, and you want to just bless their socks off, and you go out and spend way more money than you could really afford. You wanted to give something extravagant. And it almost doesn't matter how they respond, although you'd like them to respond well. But you just feel so amazing. Why? Because you spent a lot of money? No. Because you demonstrated how much you love that person in your extravagant giving. I believe God loves an extravagant giver. And it comes out of a generosity motivated by love. Christ was an extravagant giver. He left heaven, came to earth, walked the dirt paths through, through the, the Judea and Galilean wildernesses, and he went to a cross, and he was beaten and flogged and nailed to that cross because he loves you so much, because he loved me so much. Talk about an extravagant gift. And that's what I want to encourage us with, challenge us with. We need to search our hearts. You know, when we're doing things as a church, and I should maybe touch on this, does it need to be given to the church? No, we're not going to tell you where to give your money. In Malachi, it talks about the storehouse. It was set up, the tithes were supporting the priests and supporting the temple and supporting all those things. It's where they went to minister and minister unto God and to be ministered to by God. I believe there's an advantage to giving to the local storehouse, the local church. Uh, It's where we receive ministry. It's also a great place for you to be able to give with accountability. We can look and we should show anybody, anytime, where every dime we spend goes. We check out and know every ministry that we support. If somebody calls us and wants to support a ministry, we might be interested, but the first thing we're going to do is we're going to look, we're going to call, we're going to see who they're accountable to. Do we know somebody that knows them? We want to steward that money. Giving to the local storehouse, the local church, gives us a level of accountability. You know, in our, in our congregation here, it doesn't change much. We, about 48% goes towards staffing, which we believe is an important part of ministry. And that's how I eat. Not just me. About 20-some percent goes to the building. Sometimes up to 30% or more goes to missions and evangelism. And we, we give to other ministries somewhere between thirty dollars and $50,000 a year. And that's not even counting all the short-term missions. We are a generous church. 
But what we would love to see is everyone participating in that generosity out of love for people. And that's our goal. To see everybody be blessed because of these biblical principles. If your finances are in chaos and disaster, maybe, and I have a stronger opinion than that, but maybe part of that problem lies in our not giving the blessings that God has promised. Let's close in prayer. Lord, once again, I I just pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit moves on our hearts. Father, that we do, by your grace, grow more and more in love with you and your people. God, that we would love people more. That we would look to Jesus as a a role model and, and be overwhelmed with gratitude and thanksgiving for what you've done for us. And know that you love others as much as you love us. That we would seize the opportunities to give generously of our time, our talents, and our treasures. Father, that it would all be done to bring glory and honor to you and to advance your kingdom here in this region that we live in, but also around the globe. We thank you, Father, that we can be a part of doing that. I pray your blessings upon each one. I thank you for each one that's here today. Thank you for the gifts and talents you've deposited in each one. And I thank you for the the meeting of needs. And Lord, that you would move on our hearts when we see a need right here with a brother and sister, that we would be quick to see how we can help and meet that need. God, I pray that we would be known as a people individually and as a people, as a church, a church that loves others and gives generously. And that you would receive all the glory and honor in that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.